Welcome to the Women in Government podcast, a place for people to come together to discuss important issues and policies of the day. To get the conversation started, here is Hawaii Representative Lauren Matsumoto. The statistics are alarming. Only four out of 10 working age adults with disabilities have a job. Less than three years ago, the employment percentage was more than double for those without disabilities, with more than 75% of people in the workforce. This gap needs to be addressed and policies need to be developed to help improve employment outcomes for people with disabilities. On this episode of the Women in Government podcast, powered by the State Exchange on Employment and Disability, or SEED, initiative, we're going to discuss helping people with invisible disabilities, those that go undetected by the naked eye. Some examples are people living with heart problems, autoimmune diseases like lupus or MS, and mild traumatic brain injuries. The list also includes those with mental health conditions or substance abuse addiction. Our goal is to help increase the employment of people with all types of disabilities and give everyone a chance to achieve the American dream. For us to do that, it's important to identify which state policies, legislation, and programs exist or are needed that can help employees with invisible disabilities. We have three guests joining the conversation. First, I'd like to welcome a member of Human Services and Public Health Committees, Illinois Senator Maddie Hunter. She has performed extensive legislative and community work around criminal justice and has professional experience in human resources and substance abuse counseling. Welcome, Senator. Thank you very much for having me, Representative. It's a pleasure. Yes, and we also have Maryland Delegate Cherie Sample-Hughes, who is a member of the Health and Government Operations Committee and Joint Committee on Behavior, Health, and Opioid Use Disorders. You may also remember her from a few of our other podcasts. And thank you so much for joining us again, Delegate Temple-Hughes. Thank you, Representative. It's certainly a pleasure to be a part of this podcast because I have certainly learned a lot while moderating, but to be on this side is going to be a great experience. So thank you. We're excited to hear from you. And finally, Jacqueline Sly. She is a member of the South Dakota Board of Education Standards and she was a former South Dakota state representative and former Women in Government board member, we have Jacqueline Sly. Thank you. I look forward to the conversation that we'll be having today. Yes, and I'd also like to thank everyone who's listening and remind you to like or share our podcast. And you can also email us by visiting womeningovernment.org. A few of the first steps towards creating equal opportunity for people with disabilities began almost 50 years ago with the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 and followed by the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, of 1990. Since then, many states have been doing their part to help make sure employers don't discriminate against people with disabilities. In 2013, the Illinois Employment First Act was created and Senator Hunter was chair on this bill. Senator, can you tell us why there is a need for the Employment First Initiative? Yes, thank you very much for that question. So in April of 2013, House Bill 2591 was introduced to prohibit private employers, state and local governments, employment agencies, and labor unions actually from discriminating against qualified individuals with disabilities in the job application procedures, such as hiring, firing, advancement, compensation, job training, and some other items and conditions of employment. And so the ADA covered employers with 15 or more employees. So that's basically why we needed such a measure in place to protect persons with disabilities. The Illinois Employment First Act is now in its fourth year. 
Can mm-hmm. you tell us the effect that it's had on employment and have the numbers improved at all? Sure. Of course, it has been very effective and it has improved greatly through December of 2018. And the employment rate for working age people with disabilities now stand at 30.2%, which is up from 27%. And then the unemployment rate of working age people with disabilities has dropped from 11.5% in 2016 to 8.5% in August of 2018. So More than 50% of disabled Americans are in their working years from ages 18 to 64. Thank you so much for that information. Moving on, Delegate Sample Hughes, you've been working with SEED and consulting with them to draft two bills this session. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Thank you for the question, and it is definitely work in progress. I've been able to draft some legislation, and the goal of one of the pieces of legislation is to provide adequate reporting of information as it relates to our annual report by the Workers' Compensation Commission. And the benefits and the necessity of having the information goes a long ways. Some of the examples are understanding the temporary disability insurance program, getting a thorough report on that, the return to work demonstration and pilot programs, offering also guidance and training of medical providers Any information that can be available for the greater good will ultimately allow various agencies and businesses to come into the understanding that they need to prepare for persons with disabilities as they return into the workplace. So having this information readily available and giving this annual report to the General Assembly and the governor is going to make our state even stronger. We have great programs, but there's certainly more work that can be done, and the more thorough the information that's available will bring additional light to the issue, but it also will see how we can strengthen what's already in place. The second piece of legislation is dealing with the need to have a centralized accommodation fund, and what that means is if businesses or state agencies are trying to adapt to the needs of someone with a disability and need that additional financial resources, then this fund would be set aside to an earmark just as that, to ability to have that as a resource to come into play so they can, in fact, make sure the workplace is accommodating and is adequate for persons with disabilities. So we are looking at it from a couple of standpoints because many people come into the workplace and or leave and don't have the adequate tools that they need to do their jobs. And we want need to be inclusive at all fronts. Those sound like two really great bills that will be effective across all of our states. Employment is a key component to everything we'll be talking about today, whether it's equality of opportunity, independent living or economic self-sufficiency. And actually, here's a question we can answer. What are some of the ways states can partner with and support employers to practice inclusive hiring? Ms. Sly, why don't we start with you? Sure, thank you. And mine kind of bounces off from both of the things that have been talked about with Delegate Sample Hughes and also Senator Hunter. Our state, South Dakota, took a little bit different approach. They didn't go through bills or laws in order to move forward. They had a task force in 2013, and it was called South Dakota Employment Works Task Force. Our governor at that time, Governor Dennis Dugard, both his parents were deaf. And so he had a real heart for looking at employing people with disabilities. So with that task force, they had legislators and business owners, individuals with disabilities and family members 
they got together and they just talked about the issue of employing people with disabilities, including those with invisible disabilities that sometimes we don't see when we look just at an individual. And what they did is they ended up with some recommendations and our state has been working with that ever since. One of them was they found out that businesses, when they're looking at hiring or have questions about hiring people with disabilities, sometimes you end up on a rabbit chase for finding out who you can find out that contact. So they established a single point of contact at the state level to interact with the businesses and then they could go out from there. They also started an awareness campaign for South Dakota with the Department of Human Services, and that was on educating employers about the benefits of hiring those with disabilities. And through that, they've had PSAs, which they have run, that have shown people with disabilities and how they have been successful in that workforce. Something else is they looked at developing systems that promote promising practices. They wanted to address the needs of some underserved population that we have in our state. One of them is Native Americans, and another one was veterans. So as they did that, they began to educate the public, providers, employers, and also the people with disabilities. And they've done a lot to recognize those employers that are hiring people with disabilities. In our state, we partner with a lot of the business owners through our Retailers Association or Chamber of Commerce. And through that, you get the names out there of people that want to and are interested in employing people with disabilities. So through that, we've been able to each year just build on those successes. And I think that that has really moved South Dakota forward. Currently, our employment for persons with disabilities is over 50%, and that's accounted for by this campaign that we've had, and also we have a small population in our state, so everyone has a face, and so that has really helped us in knowing whether it's a neighbor down the street, a relative, an acquaintance. Those are all things that have really contributed to having the success of employing people with disabilities. Those are such great points. And Ms. Lai, like you, Hawaii has done something not policy-related. Last year in October, we had a Empowering All Abilities job fair, and that was put on by several of the state legislators as well as some government agencies. But what made this job fair different is it was a reverse job fair for ready-to-work candidates with disabilities. And so instead of having the individuals go around to the different booths that the employers had, we had more than 100 employers come down to the Capitol and walk around to 50 job seekers who set up their booth. And so this was something that was a little bit different. It was the first time we've tried it, and it was a huge success. And so during the fair, it was great to see the on-site interviews that were being conducted and just the awareness that was happening. And in addition, I know our governor, David Egate, and other legislators have been working really closely with SEED to address the disability employment issue. And this past October was proclaimed Disability Employment Awareness Month in Hawaii. And so those are just a few things that are not necessarily policy related, but then can make a difference for awareness about this issue. Senator Hunter, do you have any great things to add? Sure. Promoting public awareness and education is very important to us as well. For example, if an individual receives Social Security disability benefits and wants to work, they can find information on our website. We created a website 
in order to accommodate people who were in need of services. And it basically was approaching state workers for guidance of how to work effectively and obtain benefits and get related information. And so the website states that community mental health centers staff provide help and job development. They can get coaching ideals and placement. And the individuals can basically focus on doing the work in a competitive job market as opposed to these subsidized workplaces. And so it has proved to be very effective in Illinois. Delegate Sample Hughes? Yes. One in particular program that comes to mind is known as our Quest Internship Program for Individuals with Disabilities. And how I came to understand a little bit more about this specific program was that I had a young lady, she's blind, and her mother actually was my second grade teacher. And so she was naturally comfortable in speaking with me about the fact that her daughter had gone through this program. And the program, what it does is allows persons to get training, to get skills, really hone in on what activities that they like doing in the workplace. But they're connected with a state government agency align with their interests. And so once the young lady went through that Quest internship program, she was then able to utilize her skills that she had garnered from working in this government agency and then apply for employment with the Board of Education. And what was really beneficial to her to get that leg up, if you will, is that the certificate that was given, she attached that with her resume and showed that she had these specific skills. And that not only naturally employed her, but it also provided her an extra level of confidence to go into the workforce and quickly share that she has this skill set and another government agency employed her and shared her efforts. And so that became just a continuum of care, and I'm referencing care because it is a process. People with disabilities want to be in the workplace, but they also know that they need other people to support them and other ways of getting the experience. So that program in particular was extremely helpful, and it still to this day is. The one other thing that I would see and I like to build upon is to have a stronger connection with our Chamber of Commerces across the state whereas they need to be aware of the programs that are in place and or be able to offer additional skills to persons with disabilities so they can return to the workplace or be able to embark upon a career that they otherwise may not have thought about. And I think that can be an educational tool across the board for all stakeholders. But moreover, I think there should be more emphasis given to the private sector to have that stronger involvement there. And I think one way to kind of get our foot in the door and have that level of education and constant conversation is through our Chamber of Commerces. And then from there, we can build upon how I would envision the members of the chamber would then ask questions or delve a little bit more into their ways that they can be a part of the whole process. So I think we've got great things to highlight, but we also certainly have more work to do. Thank you. That story was so inspiring and the importance of working with partners like Chamber of Commerce is so important. In 2014, I know a national initiative was funded Transforming Lives Through Supported Employment, and the purpose of this program is to enhance state capacity to expand evidence-based supported employment programs for adults with mental illnesses. Senator Hunter, can you tell us how mental health plays a role in disability employment? Sure. Mental health plays a very important role in disability employment. I recall 
several years before I became a legislator, I worked at a behavioral health care facility where they operated outpatient, intensive outpatient and residential services for mentally ill patients. And many of them, of course, had the capacity to work, but some of them felt insecure in going out and seeking employment on their own. So therefore, had a very large building, open space, such as a warehouse kind of environment where employers were brought to those patients. The patients were already familiar with that particular facility because that is where they received their adult day treatment and care there every day. So when the employers were brought in, they felt very comfortable in their environment. Different sections were set up with numbers on them and one through five or six, you know, and the patients were able to go through each station, being interviewed and interacting with the employer and talking about their experience. It was such a great opportunity for our clients because they felt comfortable in the environment that they were in. The employers were very sensitive to the needs of those particular clients. So everyone felt so comfortable and many of the patients were hired on the spot. And it worked out really, really well. So. It is so important that we sometimes have to accommodate our disabled population by bringing employers to them. And as mentioned earlier regarding the transforming lives through supportive employment, I think that was a very effective program because it did allow us to enhance in Illinois the capacity to expand that evidence-based and supportive employment program for adults. And we even tested it and used it for the behavioral health community as well. And of course, the research that came out of those two pieces was very helpful in planning future initiatives. So it worked out really well. As a participating state, Illinois is providing people with mental health conditions opportunities to contribute their communities through competitive employment. Can you provide the details and explain the IPS, or Individual Placement and Support Model? So Illinois has been called upon to expand those supportive employment services throughout the state while increasing the competitive employment among people in mental health recovery. So in order to achieve this goal, Illinois did, in fact, and continues to expand its use of that evidence-based model that we talked about earlier, which is called the Individual Placement and Supportive Program. And there are rigorous studies that are being conducted for IPS, and it has basically proven to be a very successful model in helping people with mental illness become and stay employed through the supportive services that they receive through a combination of such services as vocational, clinical, and the peer support. And so once persons receive these types of services, they feel much more comfortable in their everyday lives. And so they seem to perform better. And also, if you have depression or post-traumatic stress disorders or other mental health conditions, you are basically protected against discrimination and harassment at work because of your condition. And you have workplace privacy rights as well. And you may have a legal right to get reasonably accommodations that can really help you perform and keep your job and stay in your job. Thank you, Senator Hunter. I know we've talked about this a little bit, but I wanted to dive deeper because another important group for us to discuss is our country's veterans. I can certainly speak for all of us when I say we appreciate and value all the experience U.S. service members gain while serving our country. But sadly, like Senator Hunter mentioned, many of them are living with PTSD 
and mild traumatic brain injuries, and this makes it difficult for some to heal and transition back into the workforce. Delegate Sample Hughes, what resources are made available to returning veterans in your state of Maryland? Thank you for the question. The veterans in of itself has always been a part of my wheelhouse from many perspectives. I've been very involved in the American Legion, um, Junior Girls Auxiliary, and it's been certainly near and dear to my heart. Any type of legislation that comes out of Maryland, I'm sitting in the Veterans Caucus on the edge like, okay, how can we help? (laughs) But just to give you a couple examples, one in particular that I think is extremely beneficial, and it goes back to our business community identifying how they can be a part of the process. A particular company in our district, my district, called Delmarva Veteran Builders, This company was created by a veteran and for veterans. Only veterans are employed by this company, and it's been since just 2013. And that was because they saw the need to ensure that they can, and they do, adapt to the needs of veterans dealing with PTSD and many other things to transition back to the community. And it's been extremely successful simply because the community has embraced that model. It's effective. I think they just recently got a national award. But it came back to the fact that we in government have to educate and work with the business community to see businesses such as that be created because they are working now on major contracts. And so we're able to build on the skill set that they have during their service time and in the military. One of the other things as far as legislation that we have passed that's been extremely beneficial deals with the hiring and promotion preferences. That has really been beneficial in our veteran-owned small business as resources that are for small businesses, and this has gotten people into the door that otherwise may not have been able to get hired. So when we put those preferences in place, we knew that that could and would be a tool to help that industry. We also, through higher education as an example, have priority registration for veterans. Oftentimes, vets want to go back to school and may just need the insight or the help to get them there. And so, therefore, we made that a priority, that they can get in and get the education they need to increase their skill set. And also, I know that we looked at and have exemption for persons that are disabled for vets on their property taxes to help on that side. So it's great that we're looking at things holistically. And recently, there was conversation to truly have comprehensive prevention programs for people to come back and transition into their lifestyles and setting aside funds, particularly for not only the veteran, but also their spouses. And so there are numerous things going on, and I think that we can certainly learn from each other. But it's great that so far I've seen it tackled from many fronts, and we're going to keep plugging away. Thank you for all of your work and service in this really important area. Despite all the progress that's been made, people with disabilities still experience unemployment at a rate far above the national average. Some of the lowest employment rates for adults in the U.S. are in states like Pennsylvania, Florida, New Mexico, and California. And although none of our states are listed, there is still a lot of work for us to do. Last fall, South Dakota's governor issued a proclamation affirming the state's commitment to making employment the first priority and desired outcome for citizens with disabilities. The governor also said this priority is about creating a continuum of inclusion that begins in the classroom. Ms. Sly, as an educator and in your experience, what could a continuum of inclusion look like with students who have non-visible disabilities as they transition into the work world? 
First of all, South Dakota has an emphasis on work-based learning beginning in the elementary grades by first building an awareness of working and then doing more exploration in the middle school years and then eventually career preparation during high school. I'm currently on the Board of Education Standards in our state and one of our responsibilities is graduation requirements. We recently revamped those requirements and we included a specific endorsement for career and technical education. And with that, as part of their high school experience, is to look at possibilities such as an internship, an apprenticeship, entrepreneurial experience, project-based learning. We actually had some students here in my community. They were part of a special education program and they ran a student-run enterprise that included preparing food and selling the food at that particular high school where they were. So that gave them lots of experiences in the world of work as they were continuing at the high school level. In addition, we in our state have American Indian reservations, and many of those students have those invisible disabilities that we are talking about. They are faced with addiction, abuse, mental health concerns, poverty. And one program that we've done in South Dakota at three of the different reservations is Jobs for America's Graduates, or JAG, that we call it. And what they do is they start while they're in high school and help them get a head start in learning what the world of work is like, experiencing those skills that they would need as they would go out into the workplace. That's been highly successful, and one of the things that we've done is they are looking at transitioning from their high school years into the workplace. Another project that we have, this is a paid work experience program, and it's for high school students with disabilities in our state, and it's called Project Skills, and it's in cooperation with the state voc rehab agencies and local school districts. We already have the ability for hire that I spoke of earlier, that awareness program, and so many partnerships are already created with our local businesses within our communities, and it provides students that opportunity to go out, learn skills in a variety of different job placements, and they would have a job coach that would work with them. And what happens then is as they do that, it helps them build that work history, learn how to get references, and helps them move into different and better jobs as they're ready to take on new challenges. A third area that we have, and this is for students who would be 18 to 21 years old, and this is called Project Search, and maybe some of your states also have Project Search. It's a business-led transition program, and it's for students with disabilities, including those invisible ones that we are talking about. Students who want to work have the chance to explore different careers and develop transferable job skills. We know that many times we have jobs, learn a specific skill, but you want them to be able to transfer those abilities to come to work on time, be able to follow directions, all of the things that we know fit into all of our different jobs. Each intern, and those are the students 18 to 21 years old, they get to put those skills into practice. And they also are in the classroom part of the time learning those job skills and then they go out and they actually practice them. So those are some things that we're doing in South Dakota that help students transition from in the classroom out into the world of work. 
Thank you for all those examples. Now it's time to talk about substance abuse and the role it plays in invisible disabilities. According to the Federal Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, almost 70% of the estimated 22.4 million illicit drug users, ages 18 or older, are employed full or part-time. The National Survey on Drug Use and Health found that an average of 8.7% of full-time workers, ages 18 to 64, used alcohol heavily in the past month, and 8.6% used illicit drugs in the last 30 days. Women in Government's Companion Toolkit, State Strategies to Assist Employees with Mental Health and Substance Use Issues, Stay at Work, Return to Work, puts an emphasis on policies that promote stay at work, return to work objectives. This way, workers can remain engaged in gainful employment as tax-paying members of the community so that fewer individuals will need to apply or receive disability benefits. The next question is open for group discussion. What types of programs or services are available to those with substance use in your state? Senator Hunter, we can start with you. Here in Illinois, we have a number of programs that provide statewide services. One of my former employers, Human Resources Development Institute, better known as HRDI, a criminal justice case management organization by the name of TASC, T-A-S-E. We have Catholic Charities, Metropolitan Family Services, Family Focus, to give just an example of some of the organizations, but these programs provide services such as the case management, community intervention, detoxification, HIV testing and counseling, intensive outpatient services, residential services, and toxicology. And so the patients know that when they go into these types of programs, many of them who have never gone into treatment before, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, they're pretty nervous. They have no idea what to expect. But once they get there and they find out that they are not the only ones that are experiencing those kinds of problems, and once they start networking and meeting some of the patients that are in the programs, once they start getting assigned to a therapist or a counselor, they start feeling really comfortable and they begin to network and open up so that they can start disclosing some of the issues that they've been presenting so that they can heal and get on with their lives, reintegrate back into the community, reintegrate back into their families, and just start living a sober, safe, and clean life once again. On this W Sample Hughes, we have a myriad of programs that have been in place, some that are just starting and some that are going to receive additional funding. And recently there was a briefing with regards to $2 million was going to be sent to Baltimore City to help with their 24-hour crisis stabilization center. And I think that's a model that's going to certainly be beneficial, but also, you know, accessible for persons who are in need. Oftentimes, there are programs available, and they may operate 9 to 5 or 10 o'clock at the latest, but there's certainly there's a need for having that ability to have 24-hour crisis stabilization centers available. We also have seen the benefits of the peer mentoring programs that's been available. And what that means is that someone who has gone through substance use issues themselves is then treated and still in recovery process, but then connected with someone who needs that same level of care at whatever point in their lives. And so 
peer recovery support services are also getting additional funding, and we're seeing that across the state. And many counties are stepping up in trying to provide matches because they see the benefits. They see that their numbers can decline as far as persons who need additional treatment because they're having someone to be able to talk to and somebody to connect with. I think that is beneficial in and of itself. State has put a lot of money into more education in the community because we're hearing firsthand that the citizens want to understand the substance use issues. They know it's a problem, but they want to understand at what level can we be supportive because the faith-based community comes on board when you have more education in the community, and they understand that it's a issue that everybody has to take a step and help. I could go on and on, but I just know that it is an area where we're going to need to continue to provide services, but I am pleased and I do know that we have to do more around this particular area. Ms. Sly? In South Dakota, we have some options for alternatives to jail time, especially for those, say, with uh, DUI convictions. And in our state, we want to keep our people out in their community, working, living in their homes still participating and being a part of the workforce. So we have one program called 24-7 Sobriety Program. In that program, the participant has to have a breathalyzer test two times a day, seven days a week. And the participants are charged a dollar per test, but it's worth it because they can still be out in the community and have their jobs. Sometimes, depending on the situation, they might have to submit to a urinalysis also which they also have to pay for that themselves. So then there isn't as much cost for the county, but the participants are taking some responsibility for staying sober, basically, so that they can stay out of the county jail or prison. It's been really successful in my county. In 2017, they administered almost 150,000 breathalyzers with a pass rate of 99.3%, which is pretty amazing. The urinalysis tests, there were over 30,000, almost 31,000, and their pass rate was 98.8% pass rate. So it's been very successful. People do not want to go to jail. They would rather be out in the community and working, and this is one way to keep them in that. It also saves our counties money because it's a lot more expensive to have someone in a jail than it is to be out and having an income. And another one that we do, this was kind of taken from something that's been in Hawaii for a while. In Hawaii, it was called HOPE. We call it HOPE Probation in South Dakota. And it's designed for those individuals that can stop using drugs on their own, and we want them to make good choices, but they still need to be held accountable because we know how vulnerable that is, especially when you have that as an addiction. So the participants, they are, in one case, assigned a color, And each day, a color is chosen, but the participants call into a hotline phone service, and if their color is called, they have to report to the county jail within a short amount of time, and then they have to submit to a drug test. That's been very successful, too. It's allowed them to continue working, stay out of incarceration, and be a productive member of society. So those are two programs that we're doing in our state, and it allows people to contribute in their home that they're in, a part of, and their communities. As we wrap up, now is a good time to discuss an option that has become rather significant in the last few years, specialty courts. 
Specialty courts are problem-solving court sessions that provide court-supervised probation and mandated treatment for a variety of issues. Ms. Lai, what part do specialty courts play with non-visible disabilities in your state of South Dakota? We have had specialty courts. We first started in 2007, and it was actually a response to skyrocketing meth use, which we still have that, but in a different way. But our criminal justice system was really overwhelmed with all of the people that were involved with it. And they were looking for ways to go around that classic sentencing of punishment and isolation. They found that you go into prison, then you come out with the same addictions and the same behaviors without really changing. So what they did is they started, first of all, with a drug court. And specialty courts are really intensive programs, and it is an alternative to incarceration again. They have a very high level of supervision initially, and then they have counseling, they meet with judges, they meet with probation officers, random drug tests, and also work with the counselors and through that whole system to manage that disease of addiction. So as we went into that, it wasn't just anybody. It had to be someone who knew they had that commitment to work the program. Some of them did not complete the program, instead ended up going to prison because it's a lot easier going to prison than it is to work through your addiction. But with that diverse team that they had to support, we've had really high success with it. Well, then they moved the specialty courts to include DUI courts. That was for felony drunk driving issues. And now we have eight drug courts in our state. We have four DUI courts, three veterans courts now. And that has been really helpful, too, because as we talked earlier, veterans face a lot of issues that prevent them from being able to be active members of their community, to be in the workforce. And as they are working through, whether it might be PTSD or through a traumatic brain injury, lots of different things come into that. We also have two mental health courts. One we are just starting in the eastern part of the state, and the other one we're getting started out here. We know that there are many challenges with mental health. One of them is being able to stay on your medication and to do it consistently. Also, those times that maybe you are feeling like the world is working against you or all of the other things that are challenges in that whole field of mental health. Those two mental health courts, we're trying to find ways to get people back in the workforce if they have left it or to allow them to continue working in the world of work. And those invisible disabilities, the world outside doesn't see them, but inside everybody knows that they are facing those. And if we can give support to people, whether it's through drug courts, DUI courts, veteran courts, or mental health courts, we're moving forward in our state to give those people support. Thank you. Now, I'd like to give our guests a moment to offer closing statements. Delegate Santa Hughes, we can start with you. Thank you. I just want to reiterate that this has certainly been a great opportunity to always learn a lot, but then also to offer information. And just like Jackie was just indicating that the specialty courts make a difference. Just recently, we have opened up another veterans court in the rural part of the state, and it seems to be working. It's working because you have all agencies at the table and seeing how and generally wanting to help the veterans move forward in their lives. And so I think that as we work in this space, 
We just need to know that the toolkit, the information that is available, it works and it helps to improve the ability for the employees, but it also opens the minds and the resources to the employers. So that is certainly beneficial and the encouragement that we can give and to all stakeholders is that sometimes you just have to think outside the box and work together with your employee and know that they have a skill set, but it may be times where they just need to maybe have a modified work schedule or be in a different environment just because they have individual disabilities and may need to have an extra level of support, but also knowing that they are a very good and a quality worker. So it just takes time and patience, but I think that we'll continue as a nation to move forward and make things better for all. Senator Hunter, do you have any final words? Yes, I do. Thank you very much for the opportunity. In terms of the specialty courts, I recall several years ago when I was working in the field, we realized here in Illinois that our jails were overcrowded. The judges' dockets were just all backed up with a huge backlog. And most of those backlog and the overcrowding of the jails were related to the specialty population that we're speaking of today the mentally ill, the vets, alcohol and drug offenders, who actually were not criminals. You know, they're sick. And so they did not belong in that environment. So therefore, someone had the idea that maybe we should just separate these populations out of the regular population. Let's create these specialty courts, or specialty areas. But before the judges rendered any kind of opinion on these individuals, they needed training so that they can understand the population that they're dealing with, understand what is PTSD, understand what a mentally ill patient is going through, understand what a substance abuser is going through. And so once all of the judges were finally trained, they really understood the populations that they were dealing with. And rather than send them or mandate them to jail, they sent them to treatment so that these people can heal because they're human beings as well, the same as we all are. It's just that there was some kind of tragedy, whether it's war or some kind of trauma that occurred in their lives. And as a result, it caused them to conduct some type of negative behavior and attitude. And as a result, they wind up in jail or getting arrested or had some kind of interaction with the police officer. And so therefore, we have these specialty courts now, the drug courts, and they're working just perfectly now. But you know what the beauty of it all is that there's a tremendous amount of flexibility that's out there and that you see a trend that's coming. And so therefore, you try to accommodate that trend so that you can adjust and address those issues that come forth. And so this has been a great opportunity for us to discuss disabilities and specialty populations and specialty courts and clinics. And so I'd like to thank you all very much for having me on this panel. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Sly? Yes, I too appreciate being a part of this conversation today. It's been rich, and I think that it will provide our listeners some go-to ideas. We've covered a lot about invisible disabilities and the steps states have taken to keep or bring back individuals into the workforce. And one thing I noticed is that some of the programs we talked about had to have a law or some entity that was making it happen and money from the states and some designation in that way. But many of the programs we talked about today also don't need a lot to make them happen. But it may be facing walls. We may have to tear down those walls. We have people that become kind of 
protective of their territory. And I think we have to cross over into some other people's territory and start working together. Or maybe we have silos or fences that prevented us from moving forward. So with that, I think we have to think about leadership and collaboration, working together to create that landscape that we need in order to make pathways into the workforce for all people. I'd like to thank all of our guests for joining us on the latest Women in Government podcast. We're dedicated to helping state legislators effectively address policy barriers that may hinder the employment of people with disabilities. I'd also like to say thank you to all of the listeners for taking the time to hear this important discussion. For more, including information on Women in Government's companion toolkit, state strategies to assist employees with mental health and substance use issues, stay at work, return to work, visit womenandgovernment.org. And don't forget to subscribe to, like, or share our podcast. Until next time, I'm Hawaii State Representative Lauren Matsumoto. You've been listening to the Women in Government podcast, powered by the Office of Disability Employment Policies State Exchange on Employment and Disability or SEED Initiative, a resource made available for those interested in discussing healthcare, education, and energy, along with so many other topics. For more information, please visit womenandgovernment.org.